Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump and President Biden emerge victorious from the Michigan primaries. A closer look at what the results could tell us about the November election. A key witness for defense attorneys seeking to disqualify Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis retakes the stand. What you need to know about Nathan Wade's divorce lawyer's testimony on the timing of the Trump prosecutor's romantic relationship. White privilege and systemic racism. Old tweets from Google Gemini's product manager are resurfacing amid backlash over the technology. Find out more about the content. Lawmakers are seeking more information about the illegal immigrant who's accused of killing a Georgia nursing student last week. Our correspondent Arian Pazdar has that story and more on the border crisis from Texas. The European Union is bracing for record levels of asylum seekers. Find out where they're coming from and which European nations they're going to. Beijing revisiting its state secrets law, expanding the scope of what can be considered a national security risk. Could this mean more risk for foreign companies operating in China? This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And this morning we take a look at the latest results in the Michigan primaries. Former President Trump wins the Michigan Republican primary with 68.2% of the vote, just over 756,000 votes, earning him nine delegates. Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley coming in second with 26.5%, a little over 294,000 votes, earning her two delegates. On the Democratic side, President Biden won with over 618,000 votes. That's 81.1% of the vote. The victory gives him 109 delegates. A little, a little over 100,000 votes went to uncommitted, which accounted for 13.2% of the vote. And the latest results bring Trump and Biden one step closer to a November rematch. Despite easy victories on each side, both campaigns might still have things to worry about. Joe Biden, you're fired! Trump and Biden had no trouble winning their respective primaries in Michigan on Tuesday. But the results showed that both candidates are facing challenges in their campaigns. Michigan is seen as a key battleground state and could prove pivotal in the general election. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said that Tuesday saw a record turnout for a presidential primary in the state. It was higher than what we saw in 2020, uh, and it was notable because it was the first time our state gave voters the option to vote early in person at a early vote center. Biden faced backlash from a section of voters for his stance on the Israel-Hamas war. More than 15 percent of voters chose uncommitted in the Democratic primary. This followed an aggressive campaign by Listen to Michigan, a group that strongly opposes U.S. support for Israel. I don't think the Democrats take us seriously, um, and they're going to they're gonna have to start if they plan to win in November. The campaign, backed by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, exceeded their target goal of 10,000 votes many times over. That means Michigan will send at least one delegate to Chicago to declare that they're uncommitted to the Democratic nominee. In a state of fine margins, this could count for a lot. For his part, Biden made no mention of the uncommitted campaign as he thanked Michigan voters for handing him another victory. On the Republican side, Trump once again finished firmly ahead of rival Nikki Haley. The former president has now swept the first five states on the GOP primary calendar. 
Data from AP VoteCast reveals his core voters are mostly older than 50 and generally without a college degree. That could be a warning sign for Trump, who will have to appeal to a much wider range of voters in November, especially in states like Michigan. Michigan Republicans are only awarding 16 of the state's 55 delegates based on Tuesday's results. The remaining 39 will be awarded at a March 2nd state GOP convention. And to chat with us about last night's primary, we have David Carlucci, a Democratic strategist and a former New York State Senator. David, welcome. Great to have you with us. Now, to begin with, how big is the threat to Biden's candidacy from this block of voters in Michigan saying they're uncommitted? Well, the president has to take it seriously. But to put things in context, in, 20, in 2008, Hillary Clinton, in that race, there was 40 percent of the vote that went to uncommitted. So to put that in context, this time around, you have 13 uh, percent that's going uncommitted, while Biden did over 80 percent of the vote. So it is something to be concerned about. But remember, these voters are going to ultimately go with Biden uh, when they have a choice between either Trump or President Biden. Right. And it does look like this kind of movement, this uncommitted movement, could spread to other states. We're seeing that the leaders of the movement have, are, have set their sights on Chicago. What do you think about the potential for this to spread to other states? Well, we've already seen this in other states. An uncommitted vote is actually pretty common. Uh, in the past uh, three Michigan primaries, for example, there's been over 20,000 um, people that have voted uncommitted. So to have people do that is not necessarily 100% all in the same direction. So I think that's something that we have to pay attention to and watch carefully that, yes, uh, they are making a statement. I think President Biden is taking it seriously. But is it going to ultimately push Biden to do something uh, totally out of line with what he would ultimately do? I don't think so. And are you saying they're not all in the same direction, being they, they may be protesting for different reasons? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, an undecided vote is actually pretty attractive in the political climate today, as it's been in the past previous elections. Undecided means I don't have to really uh, take someone with all their baggage and all their uh, bad things that they've done over their careers. Uh, undecided is like having the perfect scenario. But when it comes down to the general election, uh, you don't have that luxury of going undecided. You've got to make a choice uh, if you want to make sure that your vote really counts. And do you anticipate Biden's campaign changing tack in any way in response to the, these, these votes? Well, the Biden campaign already has. I think it's more about making sure that his policy, uh, Biden's most uh, uh, senior policy advisors, are really listening to the people in Michigan listening to their concerns and seeing how they could have a win-win scenario. Um, it's going to be very difficult to do that. This is a very difficult situation. But I think Biden wants to make sure that he's listening carefully uh, to their concerns, even though it might not be in line with his mission, um, that he's listening, taking that in and seeing where he can um, uh, work with them uh, going forward. And so you mentioned that he has already changed tack. Is that in regards to last night's results, or you mean more broadly to to accommodate the needs? Or I think more the over the past uh, over the past few weeks, we've seen uh, Biden, uh, his campaign team, um, and then also his actual uh, policy team uh, try to meet with people in Michigan on the ground that have been vocal about this uncommitted campaign. And I think the feedback you've heard from people in Michigan is saying, hey, we don't really want to talk to the campaign. 
we want to talk to the people that can make a difference and implement the policies that will make us feel more comfortable about um, having peace in in Gaza, which is going to be uh, very difficult. And Biden has hinted at he's working um, to have a ceasefire. And um, I think it's all about he doesn't want to speak out of line um, or say something that he can't deliver on. But he's got to work closely with what's going on on the ground. Yeah. So what else do you think Biden needs to do in order to create this more unity in, within his party and also stay true to the many supporters who actually support the U.S.'s uh, alliance with Israel? I think this this well, despite the polling that's been out there about the lack of enthusiasm around Biden, uh, the most important thing we have to look to are these elections. Now, yes, in South Carolina, he got 96 percent of the vote. Um, yes, it's only the most enthusiastic voters that are coming out. But that's true in the Republican side and the Democratic side. But the people that are actually coming forward and casting their vote like they did in Michigan with over 80 percent of the vote, it's showing that Democrats are united behind President Biden. And I, so I, w- I would say that we can look at these things and take some um, guidance from from the, the polls in terms of this uncommitted vote. Right. Um, but I think he's doing the right thing and just has to stay the course. OK. All right. Thank you so much, David Carlucci, Democratic strategist and former New York state senator. Appreciate your time. Great to be with you. Thank you. Long shot candidates from both parties and beyond continue to keep the presidential race interesting. A Republican candidate dropped out yesterday while a Democratic hopeful is restarting her campaign. Democratic presidential hopeful Marianne Williamson is back in the race. The author dropped out earlier this month but announced today on X she is unsuspending her campaign. Wow, Williamson said in her announcement video that she initially suspended her campaign because she was, quote, losing the horse race. She also said there's a fascist standing at the door, an apparent reference to former President Donald Trump. Williamson also criticized President Biden, saying his economic policies were good for the top 20% of Americans, but not the rest of the country. What is President Biden offering? He says, let's finish the job. Well, I hope you realize we're talking about millions of voters for whom they can't even survive unless they work at two or three jobs. We need to take this country in a direction of hope and possibility and regeneration. That is the vision that will defeat Donald Trump. Republican presidential candidate Ryan Binkley announced on yesterday that he was suspending his campaign. The Dallas-based pastor and businessman posted the announcement on Axe. He expressed gratitude to his financial supporters, family and volunteers who rallied behind his vision for the country. He acknowledged their efforts, prayers, love and generosity and emphasized the importance of their collective support. Binkley went on to endorse former President Donald Trump. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has qualified to appear on the ballot in Arizona and Georgia this November. The group supporting his presidential bid, American Values 2024, said it gathered the necessary signatures for ballot access. The PAC still has to submit the signatures to the state's elections offices. Kennedy likely doesn't have enough support to win, but having his name on the ballot could impact outcomes in battleground states. Kennedy is already on the ballot in Utah, and he has enough signatures to appear in New Hampshire and Hawaii. And Laura Trump officially announced yesterday that she's running for co-chair of the Republican National Committee. The former president's daughter-in-law said she's proud to have the endorsement of Donald Trump. 
Former President Trump has been pushing to unite his campaign with the RNC ahead of the general election in November. He also endorsed North Carolina Republican Party Chair Michael Watley for the position of RNC Chair. Current RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel will step down early next month. The committee will hold an election on March, March 8th. Watley and Lara Trump are both currently running unopposed. A Michigan court affirmed yesterday that Christina Caramo's removal as chair of the state's Republican Party was valid. A Kent County Circuit judge issued a preliminary injunction on the same day as the state's Republican primary. It prohibits Caramo from acting in the capacity of the Michigan Republican State Committee in any way. Any action she took on behalf of the committee since the vote to oust her will be considered void and have no effect. Michigan Republicans voted to remove Caramo from office last month amid party infighting and alleged debt. And past social media posts of a top Google employee are going viral amid backlash over the company's generative AI model, Gemini. Users have accused Gemini of refusing to generate images of white people and that it, and that it produces inaccurate historical images that replace white people with minorities. Google apologized and paused the feature. Now political tweets from a Google project lead who was involved in Gemini's creation have resurfaced. Jack Krausick allegedly posted on X in 2018, white privilege is real. And he also reportedly praised President Biden's inauguration address for acknowledging systemic racism. Krauxy's announcement has since been made private. Oh, his account has since been made private. Google parent company Alphabet shares plummeted amid the backlash. It lost over $70 billion in market value earlier this week. And coming up, a new audit reveals that a no-bid contracts led vendors to charge exorbitant rates to provide services for illegal immigrants in New York City. The comptroller's office says taxpayers bear the costs. A search on an illegal food plant led to a bigger discovery, over $20 million worth of marijuana plants in Georgia. Authorities have arrested four Chinese nationals following the bust. More in just a moment, here on NTD News Today. One of the biggest days in the race for nominee is coming soon. Voters decide who will face off this November and we'll be covering all of it. The Nation Decides 2024 Super Tuesday with Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer, live on March 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern on NTD News. A new audit reveals that New York City taxpayers are being overcharged by millions of dollars. The New York City Comptroller's Office said that no-bid contracts led to vendors to charge exorbitant rates to staff shelters for illegal immigrants. The influx of illegal immigrants led Adams to declare a state of emergency in October 2022. The city had to quickly scale up shelter operations to provide housing under New York's long-standing right-to-shelter laws. City authorities have turned to outside vendors to provide meals, medical care and staffing services. Most of their contracts were procured on an emergency basis. Emergency procurements waive competitive bidding requirements and allow the city to quickly source vendors. But they also mean less oversight and higher prices, which translate to a bigger financial burden for taxpayers. Mayor Adams' office did not immediately respond to a request for comment. 
The top two Senate Republicans are calling on the chamber to proceed to an impeachment trial against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This after the House approved two impeachment articles against Mayorkas over his handling of border security. Minority Whip John Thune said Tuesday that people need to be held accountable for the crisis at the southern border. And Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says a full Senate trial would be the best way forward. Democrats who control the Senate have the power to dismiss the impeachment articles with a simple majority vote. The House voted to impeach Mayorkas earlier this month, accusing the top Biden official of willful refusal to enforce immigration and border security laws. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents in Boston have arrested a 34-year-old illegal immigrant convicted of child sexual assault. The Guatemalan national had been released by a court in Massachusetts, despite having an immigration detainer filed. The man, who was not named, unlawfully entered the country 13 years ago. Officers issued the detainer for him at Essex County House of Correction, where he was held following his December arrest. Despite this, the court released him back into the community. And in Virginia, authorities arrested another illegal immigrant for sexual assault of a minor. The 32-year-old from Venezuela was apprehended last week on felony charges for a sexual assault that allegedly took place in January. A 14-year-old girl was the alleged victim. Officials say Renzo Mendoza Montes was in the country illegally after being detained and released by Customs and Border Patrol in September 2023. A surprise bust for law enforcement officials in Georgia. They thought they were raiding an illegal food manufacturing plant in Pierce County, but it turned out to be a marijuana growing operation. Officials found over $20 million worth of cannabis plants inside the facility. Four Chinese nationals were arrested. One of them entered the U.S. illegally and has been detained by immigration enforcement agents. The suspects have been charged with felony marijuana manufacturing and possession of marijuana. All four have been denied bond. Illegal marijuana farms operated by Chinese nationals with possible links to the Chinese regime are popping up across the country. They're often part of larger criminal networks involving money laundering, human trafficking, and forced labor. Fifty members of Congress have asked the Justice Department for a briefing on the matter. Republicans now seeking more information on the suspect in last week's death of the Georgia nursing student. This after ICE confirmed that the individual entered the U.S. illegally. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Texas. Republican committee chairs Jim Jordan and Tom McClintock sent a letter to Homeland Security's Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday. They want more information on Jose Antonio Ibarra, the illegal immigrant accused of killing a nursing student at the University of Georgia last week. The two Republicans point out that in August, New York Police Department officers arrested Ibarra and charged him with acting in a manner to injure a child less than 17. Normally, ICE lodges a detainer when illegal immigrants are being arrested on criminal charges. But sanctuary cities usually restrict law enforcement from complying with such detainers. New York City Mayor Eric Adams this week suggested the Big Apple should let go of its status as sanctuary city. And Lieutenant Colonel Pete Chambers, who was stationed at the Texas border, tells me more and more people think this way. They are now changing their mind and saying, maybe it's not such a good idea when our cities are in complete and utter chaos. Even the homeless Americans that are there are upset now with this policy, right? Because they're like, you're taking away from us. Also this week, a Monmouth University poll found that over half of Americans now support building a border wall. 
That's for the first time since the pollster started asking the question in 2015. Chambers tells me that's because more people are now seeing what impact the border crisis has on the U.S. Now people are seeing the real stories, right, and they're going away from mainstream media and down into this different level of media. Now this comes as both former President Trump and President Biden will be here in Texas on Thursday. Former President Trump is scheduled to be in Eagle Pass, which is where the showdown between the Biden administration and the state of Texas really took place throughout the last weeks. President Biden himself, meanwhile, he will be further south in Brownsville. NTD will be at former President Trump's event, bringing you live coverage throughout the entire day. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, Texas. And a key witness for defense attorneys seeking to disqualify Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis took the stand again yesterday. A judge rejected Terrence Bradley's claim to attorney-client privilege on Monday. Bradley is the former law partner and divorce attorney for special prosecutor Nathan Wade. He previously told defense attorneys the Trump prosecutor's romantic relationship absolutely started before Wade was hired by Willis in 2021. Now he says he was only speculating. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on yesterday's hearing. I do see that message, but I do not recall. Terrence Bradley said repeatedly Tuesday under oath he didn't know or couldn't remember when Willis and Wade's relationship began. Bradley testified he only remembers having one conversation with Wade about Willis during the four and a half years of representing him as a client. I can't tell you what date that was. It was made in confidence. We were in the back of our office. Our offices were the only two in the back. There was no one else present. Trump attorney Steve Sadow drilled down on Bradley's previous text messages to defense attorney Ashley Merchant. Sadow asked Bradley why he would speculate and not just say he didn't know when the relationship started. I have no answer for that. Except for the fact that you do in fact know when it started and you don't want to testify to that in court. Overruled. That's the best explanation. This is a That's the real, that's the true explanation because you don't want to admit it in court, correct? No, I have no direct knowledge of when the relationship started. Sado asked Bradley why he corrected Merchant on where the Trump prosecutors had met in the text, but not the timeline of the relationship. I was answering the question of... She wrote magistrate court and I said no, municipal court. Judge Scott McAfee will hear closing arguments from both sides on Friday. He suggested no ruling from the bench, meaning a decision on the DA's disqualification could still be a few weeks away. The judge Tuesday said he would allow additional evidence to be referenced, including cell phone data obtained by a private investigator working for Trump's lawyers. McAfee reserved the right to reopen evidence if he feels he needs more information to make a decision after Friday's hearing. Defense attorneys claim Willis and Wade's relationship was improper and allege Willis benefited financially from the arrangement using public funds. Both refute the claims. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. To learn more about how attorney-client privilege works, I spoke with Will Trackman, General Counsel at Mountain State's Legal Foundation. Will, thanks for joining us. Now, Nathan Wade's attorney was made to take the stand again Tuesday. This is after he initially refused to speak on some matters citing attorney-client privilege. Explain for us the legality of how he was made to testify again. Right, so Terrence Bradley is the former attorney of Mr. Wade. And so the question was whether the communications between Mr. Wade and his attorney were privileged. That is, that people couldn't ask what they were. And so the judge actually took the step of interviewing uh, Mr. Bradley 
and then also giving a chance of Mr. Wade to respond to determine whether or not their privilege was actually uh, viable to be invoked. So the judge took the rare step of doing what's called an in-camera hearing or a, a hearing without the, uh, the parties present and asking him questions. What did you say? What were the conversations like? In order to determine whether or not they were privileged, because if they're not privileged, then uh, President Trump's attorneys are allowed to ask about those communications. What kind of information is the judge not able to get Bradley to turn over or reveal due to attorney-client privilege? So in this context, the judge made a very broad ruling. It was a blanket ruling saying there is nothing that uh, Mr. Bradley discussed with Mr. Wade that is privileged. So in this sense, all of the information that Mr. Bradley has about the relationship that Fannie Willis and Mr. Wade had is available to ask about. Now, that doesn't mean that Mr. Bradley has all the information uh, that the Trump attorneys want, but there's no question that's off limits, which is interesting because the attorneys for President Trump initially said we should be allowed to ask certain questions about uh, disproving the allegation that the relationship allegedly didn't start until after he was hired. The judge said that none of it's privileged, that they can ask about anything they want because it wasn't in furtherance of legal advice. So that's a big ruling for President Trump's lawyers. Well, what do you make of the developments and testimonies we've heard so far? And how do you expect the judge to rule based on what we've seen? Well, the judges issued a hearing for March 1st, that's this coming Friday, to make a, a little bit more of a record in terms of the argumentation from attorneys about whether to disqualify uh, Fannie Willis and Mr. Wade. And so we'll definitely have an answer soon in terms of whether those prosecutors can continue with the case against President Trump and others who are indicted. And so we'll find out quickly whether the judge thinks that there is a conflict of interest or whether there's uh, something that allows them to proceed with the uh, prosecution. As it stands, though, I think it's difficult to say that Miss Willis is completely innocent of everything. It does seem like she has a relationship with the person that she hired and that some people knew or at least alleged that it started before the prosecution started, meaning that she likely hired someone who she was in a romantic relationship with. All right. Will Trackman, General Counsel with Mountain States Legal Foundation, thank you so much for your insight. Absolutely. It's been great, been great to be here. Still to come, a federal judge says the House's use of proxy voting to pass a pandemic-era spending bill is unconstitutional. We have more on the details on that ruling. And homes destroyed, hundreds of thousands of acres burned, a nuclear facility shut down. Wildfires are wreaking havoc in the Texas Panhandle. More details after the break. A federal judge in Texas ruled yesterday that in late 2022, the Democrat-led House of Representatives violated the Constitution and how it used proxy voting to pass a major spending bill. U.S. District Judge Wesley Hendricks says the House violated the Constitution's quorum clause when it did not have enough representatives physically present for a vote on the legislation. The judge says instead the chamber passed it by allowing lawmakers to vote by proxy, a voting protocol that was put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic. The House ended its use of proxy voting when the Republicans took the majority after the 2022 election. The Justice Department declined to comment on the ruling. And turning now to the Middle East, 
as the Israel-Hamas war threatens to expand into a wider regional conflict. Earlier this month, the U.S. carried out retaliatory strikes against Iran-backed groups in Iraq, including Kata'ib Hezbollah. And Yemeni Houthis, also backed by Tehran, are still attacking ships in the Red Sea, despite efforts by the U.S. and allies to degrade their capabilities. Senators on the Foreign Relations Committee are now probing Iran's proxy network in the Middle East, or what they call Tehran's shadow army. Let's tune in for that hearing now. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. In January, an attack by Iranian proxies in Jordan killed three American service members and injured more than 30 others. We mourn with their loved ones this incredible loss. The Biden administration's response was pragmatic, it was resolute, and given the loss of American life, it was entirely justified. U.S. strikes send a clear message that we will not be pushed out of the region by these attacks. From Syria to Yemen to Iraq to Lebanon, Iranian proxies are a serious, lethal threat to our allies globally, to our partners in the region, and the United States national security interests. Hezbollah has as many as 150,000 rockets, some of them highly precise and sophisticated, pointed at Israel. Its elite forces on Israel's border continue to play a dangerous tit-for-tat game with the IDF. Iranian proxies have fired drones and rockets at American and coalition facilities more than 180 times since October the 17th. The Houthis in Yemen have wrecked havoc on commercial shipping through the Red Sea using weapons provided by the Iran Islamic Revolutionary Guard. I want to thank Senator Murphy and Senator Young for the hearing they held yesterday on the subcommittee that dealt with the Houthi issues. Uh, and that, at that hearing, I expressed my support for Senator Murphy and Senator Kane's concerns that there needs to be an AUMF in regards to our military operations in the Red Sea. But while Iran backs these groups, gives them weapons and training, Iran doesn't have complete command and control of their operations. That's, that makes this a very precarious situation, one that requires careful, clear-eyed American leadership. The risks of miscalculation would not only lead to another deadly attack against U.S. service members, it could lead to a full-scale regional war. The Biden administration has not taken the bait on every attack. Instead, it has focused on significantly degrading proxies' capabilities and interdicting their resupply. It is made clear that while the United States will do what is necessary to protect our people and interests, we do not seek a wider war in the Middle East or a direct confrontation with Iran. This hearing, I hope, will help us better understand Iran's intentions and how it is using its proxy network. There has been a lull on recent attacks in Syria and Iraq, but not in the Red Sea. Does Iran want to avoid an escalation? If so, to what extent do, do, do its proxies share that sentiment? Or is it laying the groundwork for something else? As you walk us through the expert assessment of Ron's calculations, I'd like to hear what might have changed in recent months. Has the risks to U.S. personnel and facilities changed? Where does it go from here? And importantly, what should we in Congress consider doing as our next steps to respond to these potential shifts over the longer term? I believe we need to do everything in our power to protect our allies, and the United States from the Iranian threat. 
That means responding to proxy attacks in a way that defends our people and our interests without escalating conflict. That means fully funding our diplomatic and security efforts with proxy forces where proxy forces operate. And it means not only imposing sanctions against Iranian proxies, but enforcing existing sanctions. At the same time, we need a long-term plan to deal with the Iran proxy network. Tehran is playing a long game. Its supreme leaders favor strategic patience. Iran thrives on chaos and suffering. The best way to undermine the Iranian threat in the long term is to offer an alternative, a comprehensive and lasting peace that allows for real regional integration. I realize this is no easy task, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't make our efforts, and that is why the president is, and that is what the president and administration is doing. Uh, we all know the, the horrific uh, attack by Hamas on, uh, in, uh, in Gaza on, on Israel. We also know that part of that was to disrupt the normalization in the region. So the best way to counter these threats is for us to move forward with peace and normalization. It is critical that the United States continue to be a force for security and prosperity in the region. We cannot let Iran succeed in pushing us out of the Middle East or undermining the hard work of charting a path towards peace. With that, let me turn to my distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, certainly those, uh, those facts are uh, undeniable and, uh, that you've laid out. Uh, I want to thank the uh, witnesses for being here. We have uh, two very good witnesses on this subject with somewhat divergent views, but uh, certainly people that know this uh, subject. Uh, let me start by saying at the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, the president's Iran policy was abundantly clear, and that was an attempt to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal regardless of the cost. Uh, the administration chose engagement and appeasement over containment and isolation. Three years later, Iran is more emboldened and empowered than before, and the Middle East is in turmoil. Iran has dramatically expanded operations against the United States. Israel is decisively engaged against Iranian proxies in Gaza, and Lebanese Hezbollah is poised to enter the conflict. The Houthis are being fueled and directed by the Iranians, and Iran is moving into the Horn of Africa. Iran is building its proxy network in Sudan and backing the Sudanese armed forces. Threats are multiplying, and attacks against Americans are at an all-time high. While nuclear uh, negotiations have collapsed, the administration has failed to enforce sanctions, unfrozen Iranian assets in exchange for Americans, allowed Iranian drones and ballistic missiles to fuel Russia's aggression in Ukraine, and stood by while Iran uh, uses its oil and its oil reserves to fund uh, its uh, lifestyle. As, as Iran marches across the Middle East, the Biden administration has still not articulated a coherent Iran policy outside of the nuclear negotiations. It's time to change course. Iran is an enduring national security challenge and requires a serious policy that uses all instruments of national power. First, we must adopt a policy of containment. Iran does not, like, uh, does not think like the West, and it cannot be talked or charmed into a change of conduct. While the regime may make tactical concessions, we must recognize and accept Iran's long-standing strategic hostility towards the United States. Second, we must better deny the regime the resources it uses to support terrorism. It's really straightforward. 
we must enforce existing Iran sanctions to include stopping Chinese purchase of Iranian oil. And we must permanently freeze Iranian assets around the world. A series of wildfires swept across the Texas panhandle earlier today, prompting evacuations. The blazes also cut off power to thousands and forced the shutdown of a nuclear weapons facility. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the fires, which have destroyed an unknown number of homes and other structures. Authorities say strong winds, dry grass, and unseasonably warm temperatures have fed the wildfires. Greenville, Texas Fire and Rescue shared this harrowing video. An emergency team driving into a hellish inferno that most would flee from. Flames line the roadside, and black smoke billows across the scorched landscape. Here the fires can be seen by air, from a plane arriving in Amarillo. The blue lights of Elk City Fire and EMS can be seen flashing as they travel along a road dotted with orange fires. Governor Greg Abbott issued a disaster declaration for 60 counties as the largest blaze, the Smokehouse Creek Fire, burned nearly 400 square miles. So far, more than 370,000 acres have been burned by the fires, according to the state's Forest Service. The main facility that assembles and disassembles America's nuclear arsenal, Pantex, had to shut down its operations Tuesday night. The plant posted on X on Wednesday that it had resumed operations. A wildfire crossed from Texas into Oklahoma, where it prompted evacuations on Tuesday. Oklahoma resident David Morris says they have been in a tornado zone and a fire zone for the last few years. You know, I'd call it climate change and global warming, but I'm not woke. It happens every year about this time. <laughs> the National Weather Service has issued red flag warnings and fire danger alerts for several other states through the midsection of the country. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from the business world. Don, thank you for joining us. So what do you have for us today? Okay, so uh, an important thing I wanted to uh, mention to you guys in this conversation is about AI's role and what it's having uh, amid this year's election. So let me start off uh, with a report published yesterday. And this report was based on the findings of artificial intelligence experts and a bipartisan group of election officials. Um, and the report was talking about popular chatbots uh, that is being used uh, in the US. And it seems like it could be generating false and misleading information. And because of that, voters could be disenfranchised uh, this election cycle, you know, with uh, presidential primaries underway, uh, next week being Super Tuesday, and it appears that millions of people are already uh, turning to artificial intelligence-powered chatbots uh, for basic information. So that's including information on how their voting process works. Now, according to the report and what it has found, chatbots like GP, uh, GP PT and Google's uh, Gemini are prone to suggesting voters uh, head to polling places that potentially don't even exist or inventing uh, illogical responses based on rehashed or outdated information. So that's significant there. And the chatbots, it seems like at this point, according to some experts, simply 
are just not ready for prime time when it comes to you know important information and nuanced facts about the elections. Yeah, it's actually incredible considering that there has been wide reporting on the fact that it's not, it's no AI is known not to be entirely accurate. So yeah. that people are turning to this is pretty interesting. Um, can you give us an example of some of the responses that were given? Sure. Uh, and what you referred to just now is, is what some call hallucinations. Uh, so five popular uh, models were tested in this research, including OpenAI's ChatGPT, uh, Meta's Lambda 2, and Google's Gemini, and two others. And it appears that they all failed to varying degrees. Uh, when it was asked to respond to basic questions about the democratic process. And for example, when participants asked uh, the chatbots where to vote in a specific, specific zip code in Northwest Philadelphia, Gem Gemini responded that there's no voting precinct in the United States with that zip code, which in fact, the researchers have found is false information that response. And another example is this. So in Nevada, Nevada uh, where same-day voter registration has been allowed since 2019, four of the five chatbots test, uh, tested uh, were wrongly asserting that voters would be blocked uh, from registering to vote uh, weeks before Election Day. And I think most people uh, would, in fact, check the information, uh, double-check, uh, what the chatbots are giving them, but I feel like uh, this research just hammers home this fact even more. Yeah, big questions here. Who's responsible now for this kind of falsehoods that are being put out and, and who should be held responsible? Thanks so much, Don. Yeah, yeah thank you, Don. Thank you. The threat of Coming up, the president of the European Commission suggests using profits from frozen Russian assets to buy military supplies for Ukraine. A full plan is expected in the coming weeks. Thousands of farmers march in Poland's capital to protest EU agricultural policies and cheap Ukrainian food imports. The demonstration came amid weeks of similar protests across Europe. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. More risks faced by foreign businesses operating in China. Its top legislative body passed revisions to the state secrets law Tuesday. The changes expand the scope of information that could be considered a national security risk. The revisions include a new concept called work secrets. This refers to information that's not an official state secret, but if leaked, could cause adverse effects. The changes could make it harder for foreign companies to do business in China. With the law being so vague, normal business activities such as collecting intelligence on local markets and business competitors may no longer be safe. The environment for business in China has become increasingly hostile. Last year, the, the offices of a few American firms were raided. China also questioned staff of consulting firm Bain & Company. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from France, Poland and other European countries. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said today that the European Union should consider using profits from frozen Russian assets to buy military supplies for Ukraine. Von der Leyen made the proposal during a speech at the European Parliament urging the EU to do more on defense policy. In her speech, the commissioner previewed a new European industrial defense strategy. Von der Leyen says one of its main aims would be to prioritize joint procurement. She added that greater European efforts in defense would not diminish the need for a NATO alliance. The full plan will be presented in the coming weeks.
And thousands of farmers marched in Poland's capital yesterday to protest EU agricultural policies and cheap Ukrainian food imports. The demonstration came amid weeks of similar protests across Europe. Protesters say they want the Polish government to withdraw from the EU's Green Deal to fight climate change. They argue that its policies are too costly for farmers. Protesters also want Poland's border with Ukraine closed to imports of grain and other food products. They say such imports are bringing down the prices farmers can get on the domestic market. Farmers from Italy, Spain, Belgium and elsewhere have made their plight a key political issue ahead of the EU's parliamentary elections in June. A bag containing a computer and two memory drives with security plans for the Paris Olympics was stolen, reportedly. Unnamed sources told Reuters the bag was stolen on a suburban train. However, they couldn't say how sensitive the data is. Some 30,000 police will be mobilized every day during the Olympics. About 300,000 spectators are expected to attend the opening ceremony along the river scene. The Paris Olympics will be held from July 26th through August 11th. The the European Union is bracing for record levels of asylum seekers. Government data shows that asylum applications jumped 18% in 2023. There were 1.1 million applications last year. This is the highest level since the 2015-2016 migrant crisis. And this number doesn't include the 4.4 million Ukrainian refugees who don't need to formally apply for asylum. The largest groups of asylum applicants are Syrians and Afghans. Other major groups include the Turkish, Venezuelans and Colombians. The number of Palestinian applicants also increased. Germany received the most applications, followed by France and Italy. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And be sure to stick around for NTD Newsroom at 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll cover more stories from the U.S. and around the world. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. President Biden's campaign and top Democratic officials vowing to double down on efforts to win back former supporters after they were hit by a protest movement in the Michigan primary. White privilege and systemic racism. Old tweets allegedly from Google Gemini's product manager are resurfacing amid backlash over the technology. Find out more about the content. Big day for House Republicans as they finally get to interview Hunter Biden behind closed doors as part of the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Lawmakers are seeking more information about the illegal immigrant who's accused of killing a Georgia nursing student last week. Our correspondent Arian Pazdar has that story and more on the border crisis from Texas. A new ceasefire deal is on the table for Israel and Hamas. Here are the latest progress on negotiations. And Shen Yun Performing Arts wraps up six shows in Miami, Florida. We hear from theatergoers, including a beauty pageant winner who praised the artistry of the performance. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, President Biden is getting his annual physical exam today. The White House said it took place at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. 
Dr. Kevin O'Connor performed the tests again. This is likely the last health update before the 2024 general election. Biden is facing questions about his memory and age, but he's not legally required to release his health information. Last year, O'Connor described Biden as healthy, vigorous, and fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency. At 81 years of age, Biden is the oldest president to have held the office. We take a look at the latest results in the Michigan primaries next. Former President Trump wins the Michigan Republican primary with 68.2% of the vote, just over 756,000 votes, earning him nine delegates. Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley coming in second with 26.5%, a little over 294,000 votes, earning her two delegates. On the Democratic side, President Biden won with over 618,000 votes. That's 81.1% of the vote. The victory gives Biden 109 delegates. A little over 100,000 votes went to uncommitted, which accounted for 13.2% of the vote. The latest results bring Trump and Biden one step closer to a November rematch. Despite easy victories on each side, both campaigns might still have something to worry about. Joe Biden, you're fired! Trump and Biden had no trouble winning their respective primaries in Michigan on Tuesday, but the results showed that both candidates are facing challenges in their campaigns. Michigan is seen as a key battleground state and could prove pivotal in the general election. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said that Tuesday saw a record turnout for a presidential primary in the state. It was higher than what we saw in 2020, uh, and it was notable because it was the first time our state gave voters the option to vote early in person at a early vote center. Biden faced backlash from a section of voters for his stance on the Israel-Hamas war. More than 15 percent of voters chose uncommitted in the Democratic primary. This followed an aggressive campaign by Listen to Michigan, a group that strongly opposes U.S. support for Israel. I don't think the Democrats take us seriously, um, and they're going to they're gonna have to start if they plan to win in November. The campaign, backed by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, exceeded their target goal of 10,000 votes many times over. That means Michigan will send at least one delegate to Chicago to declare that they're uncommitted to the Democratic nominee. In a state of fine margins, this could count for a lot. For his part, Biden made no mention of the uncommitted campaign as he thanked Michigan voters for handing him another victory. On the Republican side, Trump once again finished firmly ahead of rival Nikki Haley. The former president has now swept the first five states on the GOP primary calendar. Data from AP VoteCast reveals his core voters are mostly older than 50 and generally without a college degree. That could be a warning sign for Trump, who will have to appeal to a much wider range of voters in November, especially in states like Michigan. Michigan Republicans are only awarding 16 of the state's 55 delegates based on Tuesday's results. The remaining 39 will be awarded at a March 2nd state GOP convention. A Michigan court affirmed yesterday that Christina Caramo's removal as chair of the state's Republican Party was valid. A Kent County Circuit judge issued a preliminary injunction on the same day as the state's Republican primary. It prohibits Caramo from acting in the capacity of the Michigan Republican State Committee in any way. Any action she took on behalf of the committee since the vote to oust her will be considered void and have no effect. Michigan, Republic, Michigan Republicans voted to remove Caramo from office last month amid party infighting and alleged debt. And joining us live to discuss the Michigan primary is Amber Duke, Washington editor at The Spectator and Steamboat Institute fellow. Amber, welcome. Great to have you with us. Uh, the, to begin with, the uncommitted vote turnout was bigger than expected in the Democratic primary. Does that represent a significant challenge to Biden's campaign, do you think? 
It does, um, specifically because of the fact that Biden really needs Michigan as a swing state in order to beat Trump in November. This was a state that he managed to win back in 2020 by about three percentage points. And the Arab American voting population in Michigan is about 5%. So if he loses a significant chunk of that, uh, that identity group, that could swing the election in Trump's favor. Um, at the very least, of course, it could swing Michigan in Trump's favor, which is a huge problem for the president because uh, it's not just Michigan either. There are now groups pledging to vote uncommitted around the country um, after the success of this activist group in Michigan, uh, getting voters uh, to the tune of 13.3% to object to President Biden. Yeah, it's a pretty big proportion of people who would have otherwise voted for him. Now, you mentioned that this this movement could spread. We're seeing that the act, the activists who led this movement in Michigan are already looking to um, to move the next stage of it to Chicago, and obviously it could spread beyond that. What kind of effect could this have? How big could it get, do you think? I think the ultimate goal for them is trying to collect as many delegates as possible just to show when they get to that Democratic National Convention in Chicago that there is a sizable contingent in the party that is not happy with the way the Biden administration has been handling the conflict in Gaza. Um, Biden has been generally in support of Israel. However, he's currently trying to negotiate a ceasefire. The progressive wing of the party is not satisfied with that. They want a ceasefire now. They want a permanent ceasefire where Israel stops all fighting in Gaza, stops all attempts to root out Hamas. And that's not something that the Biden administration has been willing to, to get in line with just yet. But if he feels like this could potentially hurt his chances in the general election, if he feels like these people who voted uncommitted are not going to just swing back and vote for him out of fear of Trump in November, then it could lead to him potentially changing his stance on the issue. And what kind of message could bring people together on the Democratic side? You know, he has a substantial set of voters who do support our, the U.S.'s support for Israel. That's a great point. Uh, and look, that's something that they're grappling with in the Democratic Party, I'm sure, because he has to consider that if he makes a move to support a permanent ceasefire right now, without any conditions in terms of changing the current governing authority in Palestine or uh, perhaps continuing monetary support, financial support to Israel, then he could uh, keep this Arab American population that has been a key component of the Democratic Party. But another coalition that routinely votes Democratic to the tune of about 70 to 75 percent is Jewish Americans. So if Biden flips for the sake of keeping Arab Americans in the coalition, could he lose a significant portion of the Jewish vote? And this is kind of a fundamental problem facing the Democratic Party right now, is if you create a party that's cobbled together with different identity groups to create a major voting bloc, eventually those identity groups could come in conflict with each other in terms of what their goals are. Yeah, and you know, Trump and Nikki Haley have both been strong on support for Israel. How could they potentially use this to their advantage in their campaigns? Right. I mean, I think they're definitely uh, going to bring this up in a general election if it if it gets there for either Trump or Nikki Haley. Right now, it seems Trump is the presumptive GOP nominee, um, but they will definitely try to drive that wedge within the Democratic Party. And I think for Trump, it will be less about um, about his own policies, but about trying to perhaps sow that discord and pointing out that Biden has tried to sort of split the baby on this. Um, he hasn't really uh, been willing to give 
full support to either the pro-Israel or pro-Palestine side. And that's damaged him because it's it turns out that nobody is satisfied with his position right now. Of course, Trump also can run on the fact that he was a very pro uh, vocally pro-Israel supporter when he was in office. He moved the capital to Jerusalem. He uh, had multiple members of his cabinet over to negotiate with Israel and increase relations. He repeatedly talked about them as the uh, as America's biggest ally in the Middle East, their most important ally. And that could be a way for him to potentially pick off some people from Biden if he does ultimately move towards a more pro-Palestinian position. Certainly uncommitted voters have the option to change tack uh, and maybe looking further abroad from their usual votes. Thank you so much. Amber Duke, Washington editor of The Spectator and Steamboat Institute fellow. Great to speak with you. Thank you. And past social media posts of a top Google employee are going viral amid backlash over the company's generative AI model, Gemini. Users have accused Gemini of refusing to generate images of white people and that it produces inaccurate historical images that, that replace white people with minorities. Google apologized and paused the feature. Now, political tweets from a Google project lead who was involved in Gemini's creation have resurfaced. Jack Krizawick allegedly posted on X in 2018, white privilege is real, and he also reportedly praised President Biden's inauguration address for acknowledging systemic racism. Krizawick's account has since been made private. Google parent company Alphabet shares, plum shares plummeted amid the backlash. It lost over $70 billion in market value earlier this week. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has qualified to appear on the ballot in Arizona and Georgia this November. The group supporting his presidential bid, American Values 2024, said it gathered the necessary signatures for ballot access. The PAC still has to submit the signatures to the state's elections offices. Kennedy likely doesn't have enough support to win, but having his name on the ballot could impact outcomes in battleground states. Kennedy is already on the ballot in Utah, and he has enough signatures to appear in New Hampshire and Hawaii. And long-shot candidates from both parties and beyond to get continue to keep the presidential race interesting. A Republican candidate dropped out yesterday while a Democratic hopeful is restarting her campaign. Democratic presidential hopeful Marianne Williamson is back in the race. The author dropped out earlier this month but announced today on X she is unsuspending her campaign. Williamson said in her announcement video that she initially suspended her campaign because she was quote losing the horse race. She also said there's a fascist standing at the door an apparent reference to former President Donald Trump. Williamson also criticized President Biden, saying his economic policies were good for the top 20% of Americans, but not the rest of the country. What is President Biden offering? He says, let's finish the job. Well, I hope you realize we're talking about millions of voters for whom they can't even survive unless they work at two or three jobs. We need to take this country in a direction of hope and possibility and regeneration. That is the vision that will defeat Donald Trump. Republican presidential candidate Ryan Binkley announced yesterday that he was sus suspending his campaign. The Dallas-based pastor and businessman posted the announcement on X. He expressed gratitude to his financial supporters, family, and volunteers who rallied behind his vision for the country. He acknowledged their efforts, prayers, love, and generosity, and emphasized the importance of their collective support. Binkley went on to endorse former President Donald Trump. Coming up, do bump stock devices transform semi-automatic firearms into machine guns? The Supreme Court is hearing a case on it. 
All units of the Army National Guard helicopters have been grounded for a safety evaluation. That's after a series of incidents, including a fatal crash. More in just a moment, here on NTD News Today. One of the biggest days in the race for nominee is coming soon. Voters decide who will face off this November, and we'll be covering all of it. The Nation Decides 2024, Super Tuesday, with Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer, live on March 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern on NTD News. Today, Hunter Biden appeared before Congress to testify in the impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Our Washington correspondent, Louise Martinez, joins us live now with more on the probe. Hey, Louise, good to see you. What's the latest out there? David, Steph, yes, thank you, and good day. Today, around 10 a.m., Hunter Biden, the president's son, appeared at the O'Neill House office building to testify before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committee. This deposition is part of the impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden. Let's remember that House Republicans are accusing the president of using his political influence to economically benefit his family's dealings. Now, it's important to note that this interview was initially scheduled to happen on December 13th of last year. But on that day, December 13th, Hunter Biden, instead of showing up to his scheduled interview with the House Oversight Committee, he took to the steps of Capitol Hill to make a political statement where he defended himself, he defended his father, he demanded a public hearing, and then he vowed not to appear behind closed doors before the House Oversight Committee, which of course he is doing today. And what changed was that after that date, December 13th, and after Hunter Biden failed to show up to his interview, the committee held Hunter Biden in contempt and sent a resolution to the House floor. And before it was voted upon, Hunter Biden's lawyers reached out to schedule today's interview. Now, it's also important to note that chairman of the House Oversight Committee, the Republican James Comer, has stated that there is ample evidence uh, against President Joe Biden. Let's hear what James Comer, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, had to say. Our committees have unearthed substantial evidence of President Biden and his family's corruption. The Bidens created 20 shell companies It's also important to note that Democrats have, throughout the process, said that the impeachment inquiry is a political sham, specifically after the indictment of Alexander Smirnov, longtime FBI informant, who was, again, indicted earlier this month for lying to the FBI specifically about information he provided regarding Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's business dealings. Now, I spoke with a Democratic congressman, Greg Kassar, a freshman in the Oversight Committee, and he had strong language against his Republican counterparts for continuing this impeachment inquiry. Let's listen what Congressman Greg Kassar had to say. I think almost any American would say, just stop embarrassing yourself, stop shaming yourself this way. And they just seem to be gluttons for punishment. They're back at it again. And I think they're just gonna embarrass themselves again. Then I also spoke with Congresswoman Nancy Mace, the Republican from South Carolina, and she herself had very strong language against her Democrats for not wanting to pursue the impeachment inquiry. Let's listen to what Congresswoman Nancy Mace had to say. Uh, of course, that's 
because we all know what the FBI said about this witness. They said that this witness was trustworthy and credible. They paid this witness six figures. So is the FBI that incompetent to pay this guy hundreds of thousands of dollars for him not to be credible, for him not to be trustworthy? So, of course, Hunter Biden is the most prominent figure to be deposed by the House Oversight Committee so far after James Biden, the president's younger son, uh, younger brother, was deposed last Wednesday. The chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, has stated that Hunter Biden will not be the last person to be interviewed in this investigation. Steph, David, back to you. Great. Thanks for that reporting, Lewis. So what's next in this impeachment inquiry? Well, like I just said, uh, James Comer, the, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, has said that this is not the last interview that they will conduct. So Democrats' expectation that this will be the climax of the investigation does not seem uh, to be happening as there will be more people uh, to be deposed. But of course, Hunter Biden is the most prominent figure to have been interviewed, uh, also obviously a, a prominent figure of the Biden family. So uh, we will see which next witnesses uh, House Republicans uh, bring to the table and also if they're going to pursue Alexander Smirnov's testimony and its veracity. Uh, back to you, Steph and David. All right, great. Thanks so much, Louise. And the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments in a case on gun rights. The High Court needs to decide if a bump stock transforms a semi-automatic firearm into an automatic weapon. The two sides presented their arguments. Those weapons do exactly what Congress meant to prohibit when it enacted the prohibition on machine guns. And those weapons are machine guns because they satisfy both disputed parts of the statutory definition. First, a rifle with a bump stock fires more than one shot by a single function of the trigger. In common usage today, as in 1934, a function of the trigger happens when some act by the shooter, usually a pull, starts a firing sequence. Behind the government's argument is a sense that the, this statute was initially enacted because of uh, what some of the uh, uh, individuals did uh, during uh, prohibition. Mm -hmm. um, and there was significant damage from machine guns, uh, carnage, uh, people dying, et cetera. And the, behind this is the notion that the bump stock does the exact same thing. Federal law prohibits automatic weapons, also known as machine guns. For years, the ATF said that non-mechanical bump stocks didn't constitute a machine gun. But the agency changed its position in 2018 following the Las Vegas shooting in 2017. Michael Cargill, the host of Come and Talk It radio show, sued the ATF over the new interpretation. The Fifth Circuit ruled in his favor. The Justice Department asked the Supreme Court to consider the case. Cargill agreed. Other circuits have issued conflicting rulings on how to classify bump stocks. And a new audit reveals that New York City taxpayers are being overcharged by millions of dollars. The New York City Comptroller's Office said that no-bid contracts led vendors to charge exorbitant rates to staff shelters for illegal immigrants. The influx of illegal immigrants led Adams to declare a state of emergency in October 2022. The city had to quickly scale up shelter operations to provide housing under New York's long-standing right-to-shelter laws. City authorities have turned to outside vendors to provide meals, medical care and staffing services. 
Most of their contracts were procured on an emergency basis. Emergency procurements waive competitive bidding requirements and allow the city to quickly source vendors. But they also mean less oversight and higher prices, which translate to a bigger financial burden for taxpayers. Mayor Adams' office did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents in Boston have arrested a 34-year-old illegal immigrant convicted of child sexual assault. The Guatemalan national had been released by a court in Massachusetts, despite having an immigration detainer filed. The man, who was not named, unlawfully entered the country 13 years ago. Officers issued the detainer for him at Essex County House of Correction, where he was held following his December arrest. Despite this, the court released him back into the community. And in Virginia, authorities arrested another illegal immigrant for sexual assault of a minor. The 32-year-old from Venezuela was apprehended last week on felony charges for a sexual assault that allegedly took place in January. A 14-year-old girl was the alleged victim. Officials say Renzo Mendoza Montes was in the country illegally after being detained and released by Customs and Border Patrol in September 2023. And a surprise bust for law enforcement officials in Georgia. They thought they were raiding an illegal food manufacturing plant in Pierce County, but it turned out to be a marijuana growing operation. Officials found over $20 million worth of cannabis plants inside the facility. Four Chinese nationals were arrested. One of them entered the U.S. illegally and has been detained by immigration enforcement agents. The suspects have been charged with felony marijuana manufacturing and possession of marijuana. All four have been de denied bond. Illegal marijuana farms operated by Chinese nationals with possible links to the Chinese regime are popping up across the country. They're often part of larger criminal networks involving money laundering, human trafficking, and forced labor. Fifty members of Congress have asked the Justice Department for a briefing on the matter. Republican lawmakers in Georgia are seeking to tighten immigration laws. Their increased efforts come after an illegal immigrant allegedly killed a nursing student in Athens. Jose Antonio Ibarra is suspected of killing Lakin Riley, a 22-year-old at Augusta University's Athens campus. The 26-year-old from Venezuela entered the country 18 months ago. Riley disappeared after her morning jog around a wooded area at the university on February 22nd. Her body was discovered along her usual route later that same day. Ibarra was arrested following a review of campus security footage. In the wake of his arrest, Georgia House Republicans are pushing a new proposal. Jail officials would be required to notify U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement if a suspect is in the country illegally. Republicans now seeking more information on the suspect in last week's death of the Georgia nursing student. This after ICE confirmed that the illegal individual entered illegally. NTD's Arian Pastar has more from Texas. Republican committee chairs Jim Jordan and Tom McClintock sent a letter to Homeland Security's Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday. They want more information on Jose Antonio Ibarra, the illegal immigrant accused of killing a nursing student at the University of Georgia last week. The two Republicans point out that in August, New York Police Department officers arrested Ibarra and charged him with acting in a manner to injure a child less than 17. Normally, ICE lodges a detainer when illegal immigrants are being arrested on criminal charges. But sanctuary cities usually restrict law enforcement from complying with such detainers. New York City Mayor Eric Adams this week suggested the Big Apple should let go of its status as sanctuary city. 
And Lieutenant Colonel Pete Chambers, who was stationed at the Texas border, tells me more and more people think this way. They are now changing their mind and saying, maybe it's not such a good idea when our cities are in complete and utter chaos. Even the homeless Americans that are there are upset now with this policy, right? Because they're like, you're taking away from us. Also this week, a Monmouth University poll found that over half of Americans now support building a border wall. That's for the first time since the pollsters started asking the question in 2015. Chambers tells me that's because more people are now seeing what impact the border crisis has on the U.S. Now people are seeing the real stories, right, and they're going away from mainstream media and down into this different level of media. Now this comes as both former President Trump and President Biden will be here in Texas on Thursday. Former President Trump is scheduled to be in Eagle Pass, which is where the showdown between the Biden administration and the state of Texas really took place throughout the last weeks. President Biden himself, meanwhile, he will be further south in Brownsville. NTD will be at former President Trump's event, bringing you live coverage throughout the entire day. Arian Pastar, NTD News, Texas. The top two Senate Republicans are calling on the chamber to proceed to an impeachment trial against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This after the House approved two impeachment articles against Mayorkas over his handling of border security. Minority Whip John Thune said Tuesday that people need to be held accountable for the crisis at the southern border. And Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says a full Senate trial would be the best way forward. Democrats who control the Senate have the power to dismiss the impeachment articles with a simple majority vote. The House voted to impeach Mayorkas earlier this month, accusing the top Biden official of willful refusal to enforce immigration and border security laws. And lawmakers might have a solution to avoid a partial government shutdown Friday. House Speaker Mike Johnson's office says he's now open to a continuing resolution. The plan has two stages. The four government agencies that could close after Friday would get another week of funding. They include the Departments of Transportation, Veterans Affairs, Agriculture and Housing and Urban Development. The funding deadline for everything else would be March 22nd. This is the first day the House can vote on spending legislation since representatives are back from a recess. And a federal judge in Texas ruled yesterday that in late 2022, the Democrat-led House of Representatives violated the Constitution and how it used proxy voting to pass a major spending bill. U.S. District Judge Wesley Hendricks says the House violated the Constitution's quorum clause when it did not have enough representatives physically present for a vote on the legislation. The judge says instead the chamber passed it by allowing lawmakers to vote by proxy a voting protocol that was put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic. The House ended its use of proxy voting when Republicans took the majority after the 2022 election. The Justice Department declined to comment on the ruling. During the COVID-19 pandemic, about 168 million students were out of school for almost a year across the globe. The debate continues today over whether lockdowns harm students more than the risk of COVID. To learn more, I spoke with Dr. Scott Atlas, former advisor for the White House Coronavirus Task Force and senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Dr. Atlas, great to have you with us. Now, on the topic of school closures during the pandemic, Dr. Phil talked about the lack of evidence for closures and the harm on children on the show called The View. Here it is. We know a lot of folks who died during this. So it wasn't people weren't laying Not around eating bond, but well, you know what? We're lucky.
Are you saying no school children died of COVID? I'm saying it was the safest group. They were the less vulnerable group and they suffered and will suffer more from the mismanagement of COVID than they will from the exposure to COVID. And that's not an opinion, that's a fact. Doctor, what's your reaction to that exchange? Well, uncertainties existed in early 2020, but one fact was already clear, and that was that healthy children did not have a significant risk of serious illness or death. In fact, the risk was minuscule, documented not only by our own CDC in, in uh, uh, spring and summer of 2020, uh, that they people under 20 had a 99.997% chance of survival, but from studies early in 2020, in Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Switzerland, France, South Korea, Australia, on and on, showed not only minuscule risks to children, but also that almost all transmission uh, to children comes from adults and not the other way around. Now, you were a proponent of keeping schools open during the pandemic and bringing them back sooner. Tell us, what was it like that during that time to hold and promote that position? Well, it, 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 uh, it became a lightning rod. I mean, the first thing I did really in August of 2020 when I went to the White House was go for what I thought was low-hanging fruit, which meant open the schools. And we had a, an event at the White House, and somehow this was attacked in part because the country is so politically uh, polarized that, uh, in my opinion, anything that that Trump wanted, which was opening schools, had to be attacked. But the reality was that uh, the data was there, uh, both on the low harms to children from the virus, but also severe harms. In fact, it was a human rights violation. I mean, it was a staggering idea that we should be closing schools. And not only was it staggering, in terms of poor decision making. It was unethical and immoral because it was much worse for low income families and poor kids. And I think this is really one of the most egregious sins of the United States. Dr. Scott Atlas, former advisor with the White House Coronavirus Task Force and senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you. The U.S. Army National Guard has grounded all of its helicopters. The stand-down comes days after two Mississippi Guardsmen were killed when their Apache helicopter crashed during a training flight. Earlier this month, an Apache helicopter also crashed in Utah, but both pi pilots survived that one. The National Guard has not said how long the helicopters will be grounded. The purpose is to review safety policies and procedures. This comes as the military is already in a fleet-wide stand-down of the V-22 Osprey. That followed the fatal crash in Japan that killed all eight airmen on board in December. And just in, Mitch McConnell, the longest serving Senate leader in history, is stepping down from his position in November after almost two decades. That's according to the Associated Press. The Republican senator is expected to make an announcement later today. At 82, McConnell said he plans to finish his Senate term, but not as leader, citing personal reflection as a reason for the change. Despite clashes with Trump and pressure from within his party, McConnell remained strategic and focused on American leadership. McConnell didn't give a particular reason for the timing of his decision, but he shared that the passing of his wife's youngest sister made him reflect on his life. 
Tensions remain high in the Middle East as Israel and Hamas continue the battle in the Gaza Strip. Entity's Jason Perry joins us with the latest developments in the war. Jason, thanks for joining us. So what's the current situation on the ground? So the current situation is the Israeli military is continuing to battle throughout the entire Gaza Strip. But the main focus now is in a city called Rafah, which is now home to over a million people. Many of them have been displaced from the war and from the battles. Um, and But also at the same time, Israel says this is a final stronghold of Hamas terrorists. But because so many people are there, Israel has received much criticism as to whether or not they should conduct operations in this city. And so what is Israel's stance on fighting in this area? Well, first of all, the area is not completely safe. Israel is still conducting airstrikes in select locations. But as far as a ground offensive happening, that hasn't happened yet. Israel gave a pretty strong warning to Hamas and said that if they don't release the hostages that they have by Ramadan, then Israel will conduct a ground offensive in the crowded city. Um, but Israel has also said that they plan to evacuate the civilians first. Jason, so basically all eyes are on the hostage negotiations to see when this battle could take place. How are the negotiations going so far? Uh, well, I wish I had better news, um, but there hasn't been any agreement so far. President Biden said that he thinks that a deal is close and a deal could be reached by Monday um, to release the hostages. Hamas is currently reviewing this new ceasefire proposal that was agreed to by Israel. So the big difference that we're looking at at the talks right now is Israel wants a temporary ceasefire to release the hostages while Hamas wants a permanent ceasefire and to end the war. And Israeli officials have said, have said this is a bit delusional. And, um, but Ramad, uh, recently, Hamas owes today, Hamas said that they're going to be more flexible in the negotiations. And Ramadan actually starts in less than two weeks, and many are hoping for a uh, ceasefire before then. Jason Perry, you've been covering the Israel-Hamas war for weeks now. Thank you so much for keeping us and the viewers updated. Thank you. More risks faced by foreign businesses operating in China. Its top legislative body passed revisions to the state secrets law Tuesday. The changes expand the scope of information that could be considered a national security risk. The revisions include a new concept called work secrets. This refers to information that's not an official state secret, but if leaked, it could cause adverse effects. The changes could make it harder for foreign companies to do business in China. With the law being so vague, normal business activities such as collecting intelligence on local markets and business competitors may no longer be safe. The environment for business in China has become increasingly hostile. Last year, the offices of a few American firms were raided. China also questioned staff of consulting firm Bain & Company. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from France, Poland and other European countries. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said today that the European Union should consider using profits from frozen Russian assets to buy military supplies for Ukraine. Von der Leyen made the proposal during a speech at the European Parliament urging the EU to do more on defense policy. In her speech, the commissioner previewed a new European industrial defense strategy. Von der Leyen says one of its main aims would be to prioritize joint procurement. She added that greater European efforts in defense would not diminish the need for the NATO alliance. The full plan will be presented in the coming weeks. 
Thousands of farmers marched in Poland's capital yesterday to protest EU agricultural policies and cheap Ukrainian food imports. The demonstration came amid weeks of similar protests across Europe. Protesters say they want the Polish government to withdraw from the EU's Green Deal to fight climate change. They argue that its policies are too costly for farmers. Protesters also want Poland's border with Ukraine closed to imports of grain and other food products. They say such imports are bringing down the prices farmers can get on domestic market. Farmers from Italy, Spain, Belgium and elsewhere have made their plight a key political issue ahead of the EU's parliamentary elections in June. In Greece, rail services came to a halt as rail workers walked off the job today. They're making the, the first anniversary, they're marking the first anniversary of the country's deadliest train crash and demanding higher pay. A year ago on this day, a passenger train from the capital Athens collided head-on with a freight train in central Greece. 57 people were killed, many of them students. A station master was arrested hours after the crash and a judge is investigating the case. The government says a trial is likely to begin in June. Protesters today joined the 24-hour walkout by Greece's largest public sector union. They say the crash is the result of decades of neglect of the rail sector and they want politicians to assume responsibility. Unfortunately, one year later we're here today and we see that we haven't got justice. The instigators haven't been held accountable, the entire system. They are trying to cover up and we're to shout loudly, together with all the relatives, parents of the lost souls, so they find justice. The European Union is bracing for record levels of asylum seekers. Government data shows that asylum applications jumped 18% in 2023. There were 1.1 million applications last year. This is the highest level since the 2015-2016 migrant crisis. And this number doesn't include the 4.4 million Ukrainian refugees who don't need to formally apply for asylum. The largest groups of asylum applicants are Syrians and Afghans. Other major groups include the Turkish, Venezuelans and Colombians. The number of Palestinian applicants also increased. Germany received the most applications, followed by France and Italy. Coming up, Shen Yun Performing Arts wraps up six shows in Miami, Florida. We hear from theater goers, including a beauty pageant winner who praised the artistry of the performance. Tomorrow, February 29th, is Leap Day, a day added to the calendar every four years. To celebrate, businesses across the country are serving up special deals. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. Shen Yun Performing Arts brought 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture to the stage in Miami, Florida last week. In the audience was the winner of Miss Global USA, who described Shen Yun as not something you get to experience every day here in America. Classical Chinese dance company Shen Yun has successfully lowered the final curtain on six performances in Miami, Florida. The company combines classical Chinese dance and music, telling stories of ancient Chinese culture from before communism. I thought that the choreography and that the timing and the placement of, between video and live performance was just amazing. It was cool to see cultures come together in that way. I thought it was a truly interesting way to celebrate not only Western culture, but also Eastern, and especially through the music. Uh, I've never seen some of those instruments before, so it was very cool to see. I'm most impressed with the professionalism, uh, high level of artistry, um, and a sense of uh, mission and a vision, something very specific, very specific message of the timelessness of Chinese culture. 
The New York-based company has a mission to revive 5,000 years of China's rich culture rooted in spirituality. That's the whole point why we're here on Earth, to help heal the collective with everything that we do. And I believe this dance represents that. So spirituality is very important to me. And it spoke to me the whole, even just the beginning, that we're all here for, uh, for mission work for the creator. So, and, and everything, even the dance moves, are just so aligned so well with the message. I would say come here for a cultural experience. It's absolutely beautiful, the art, the costuming, and the, the performance here, the talent that we see here is not something that you get to experience every day here in America. So definitely go out and see the Shen Yun performance. Shen Yun is headed to St. Louis, Missouri for three performances at the Stiefel Theater on March 2nd and 3rd. And next up in health news, the simple age-old practice of eating a whole food diet is a path to healing and staying well. Here's Gina Marie from Strong Mind and Body with some easy tips. Childhood mortality rates have significantly dropped in the past 100 years. This is because of advances in sanitation and antibiotics. But children in 2024 face new threats to their health. Some culprits include a toxic environment, pollutants in our water supply, electromagnetic fields, an ever-increasing number of childhood vaccines, a lack of physical exercise and chemical-laden food. The decline in our children's health is a complex topic involving multiple factors. But eating a healthy diet is one way we can prevent, reverse and improve many diseases. Sugar is highly addictive and detrimental to our health, especially the health of children. It's also implicated in numerous chronic health conditions. A 2023 study was published in the British Medical Journal. It found that eating too much sugar significantly increased the risk of 45 disease states. These included gout, asthma, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, heart attacks, strokes and cancer. A century ago, people ate an average of 25 pounds of sugar per year. Americans now consume an average of 168 pounds a year. For healthier alternatives to white sugar, go for raw local honey, pure maple syrup, molasses or stevia. Foods that benefit our health include leafy green vegetables, animal fats and fats from milk, cream, butter, yogurt and kefir, if they're tolerated, or coconut milk and avocado, bone broth, cheese and nuts, grass-fed beef, poultry and eggs, wild-caught fish such as salmon, mackerel and haddock, organ meat and fermented and cultured foods like yogurt, cheese, kefir, sauerkraut and kimchi. If you have a child with health challenges, knowing where to start can be overwhelming. Start by visiting the Western A. Price Foundation. It will help get your little one on the road to recovery. It's a debate that has raged on for centuries among grammar experts. And last week, Merriam-Webster Dictionary tried to put the age-old question to bed, affirming once and for all that it's okay to end a sentence with a preposition. Some writers have long struggled with the idea of wrapping up a thought using words like to, or of, or from. As Merriam-Webster explains, the debate began with writers who tried to align English with Latin, a romance language. But as the dictionary experts pointed out, English is not a romance language. So ending a sentence with the word with is perfectly fine. Not everyone is convinced though, and so the debate will rage on. And if you're looking at your calendar wondering why it's still February, it's because 2024 is a leap year. Our calendar has 365 days, but it actually takes 365.25 days for the Earth to or orbit the Sun. 
In 46 BC, Julius Caesar began the practice of adding an extra day every four years to fix the discrepancy. But it resulted in 10 extra days by 1582. That's when Pope Gregory XIII created a new calendar with February 29th as the official leap day. It established an extra day in every year divisible by four, but only in century years that are evenly divided by 400. If that's too confusing, just remember in the U.S., leap year coincides with presidential elections. So to celebrate the occasion, businesses across the country are serving up special deals. Fans of Noodles and Company will get 29% of orders off orders of $29 or more. Chipotle enthusiasts can get excited for free guacamole by using code EXTRA24 on digital orders placed on its Chipotle app or chipotle.com. For dessert, Krispy Kreme lovers who buy a dozen donuts can get another dozen for original glazed for $2.29. If donuts aren't your thing, Wendy's is offering free Cinnabons tomorrow as well. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.